The Peter Switzer Show is brought to you by The Switzer Report. Sign up today at switzerreport.com.au. Well, welcome to our first podcast of 2021. And today I've um, asked my uh, august business partner, Paul Rickard, to join us to talk about the history of his investing, what he's learned along the way uh, about buying stocks, what are some of the big mistakes, what are the things that he's um, always thinks about when he invests in stocks. And uh, we'll just try and get inside the the very, very uh, money-conscious mind of Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Okay. Is it fair for me to say you have a very money-conscious mind? I had to think about that for a moment, Peter. Uh, yeah, to an extent. I think I've probably developed a money-conscious mind. I don't think I started with that. Yeah. But as I've got uh, more into finance, then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, I'm a numerate sort of guy and finance is numeracy mm. and I like, uh, you know, the things that go with that. You're either right or wrong, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you are black and white. You are black and white. It was well, shades of grey as well. But the, well, you wear grey suits, <laughs> but I think you're more black and white as far as I can see. Paul, um, uh, we, we should say for people who don't know, Paul was the, the founding CEO of Comsec and uh, shows that he has a, a, a strong link to the stock market. But did you always think you'd end up in the stock market? No. In fact, Peter, a lot of my early history was as a bond trader and um, – I actually started uh, as a – I did a background. I, did, so I was at university doing mathematics and computer science and worked for an insurance company and put together their investment ledger, mm. which in those days was the old uh, COBOL programming and it was probably one of the first companies to have what they called an investment ledger. This is just where they managed, yeah, yeah. recorded their investments. That is so old. I've never even yeah, heard of it. you've probably never heard of it. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I got into finance because I took a sort of a traineeship uh, with um, – what was then the leading merchant bank in Australia? This is before. What, what name this was, was that? called City National. It was it was uh, part owned fifty percent by Citibank, the biggest bank in the world at the time, and fifty percent owned by National Mutual, which became AXA, part of AMP. At then, okay. Melburnians would would, would recognise it the second biggest life insurance company in Australia. Mm. Uh, this is before deregulation, and I was a trainee, and my job was to actually work on an Apple. Basic computer with 64K of memory. Mm. 64K why, why, of memory. But why Apple? Because business. Because it was before, I don't think um, IBM's PC mm. hadn't come out yet. Oh, really? So uh, Apple it, was, it was just coming out at the yeah. time, uh, about 83, 84, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, Apple was, before Apple went into phones, a lot mm. of our listeners may not realise that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, Steve Jobs had actually started off in PCs, you yeah. know, and it was, the, it was the sort of the the best PC available. So I was writing um, software to crunch numbers mm. about mathematics and finance, and uh, I got into from that to become a what is called a bond trader. So it's, equities were a bit foreign to me. Bonds were more pure, uh, and I came to shares more lately. Did, did you think at the time, you know, being one of the early users of a computer, that this is going to be the future? Like computers are going to be... Because you imagine what computers have actually become. Yeah, no, um, no sort of concept that there was going to be much more than 
you know, no, I didn't have that sort of vision, Peter. Yeah. No, I mean it was a business was, application. Yeah, it was a business, business application. We used to have what we, they still exist. HP twelve C's Hewlett Packard calculators. You see, I still carry right. around. They haven't changed much in all that time. No, but this was a, a much more sophisticated version of of the calculator. And of mm. course, no one knows what a, most people don't know what a calculator is these days. No. Uh, but uh, yeah, look, I didn't wasn't that sort of visionary with the computers. I just sort of saw it as a as a tool, yeah. and um, you know, made life a lot easier. Now, on the um, inquiring into Paul's life because he is by nature interesting. You know, I'm, you know, I'm doing it because I, I figure anyone who's an investor in the stock market can learn from someone like Paul who's been in it a long time. I'm sure he's made mistakes along the way, which he'll probably fess up to. But on the same point, those mistakes have led to, I, I think, a successful approach to investing. And so if you are a new investor, you'll learn a lot from listening to Paul. If you're a seasoned investor, I still think you'll learn something from Paul as well. So what I'm trying to do is is delve into Paul's life, uh, uh, but at the same time, learn about the best way of investing. And I must admit, I'm still learning. I've learned by hanging out with Paul. And, uh, and that's because I always look around for people who've got more experience than me in certain areas. Now, Paul, uh, biggest mistake you made in investing in stocks when you were young and dumb? Yeah, one of my earliest mistakes, Peter, was buying a company, uh, I think it was called Cambridge Credit, which oh, yeah. at the time was just a money box. When I say money box, there was another word for it, but it just – back in the early 90s um, – before we had things like internet and tech booms, we had things called, you know, follow the the entrepreneur. Right. And this was a company just raised, uh, you know, what at the time was considered to be a lot of money of about $100 million mm. without any idea what it was going to do with it. <laughs> Seriously? It was like a cash box. It was like a cash box, right? Yeah, yeah. And I just backed it and, of course, it didn't do much. And, of course, it had a couple of investments and they went wrong. And, of course, so I was expecting, you know, the fact that they raised money, did an IPO, uh have a big plan, you know, it will all be smooth sailing. And I, th- and I think sometimes, you know, you uh, – so the mistake of that was just thinking that just because someone raises money yeah. – and, and probably got a lot of publicity. No business. Did you get a lot of publicity as well, Paul? It got a lot of publicity yeah. um, and uh, just put money into it and realised within about six months and the share price started to head south that they didn't have a clue what they were going to do with it. They had yeah. no better ideas than I did. Yeah. And it was just one of those fads. And, and you keep – how old were you at the time, do you reckon? Oh, look, I was, uh, I'd like to say 17, but I probably was in my early 30s. Um, <laughs> thinking like, were... 30, thinking like a 17-year-old. Yeah, maybe not, maybe late 20s, but yeah. I was, caught, I was caught, caught up in the hype. So yeah. the, the, the moral of the story is um, just beware hype. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's always fads in markets. Um, it was a big story when Cambridge It was failed. a big story, it was, and a lot of people, you know, so-called experts were behind it. Yeah. And uh, you've got to be, you just got to be aware that, Sometimes markets are really good at hype, right? Mm. And if you're the last person in or towards the end of that, it's, it's not much point. Where were you when Poseidon was then I followed by Tasman? I, I miss Poseidon. My first big investment was uh, a couple of years after Poseidon was Woodside. Have yeah. uh, you still that got was, that stock? I know. They bought it at about $2, mm. <laughs> I yeah. think. Yeah. And this is where the, I think the Northwest Shelf was still – a bit of a dream, yeah. and I think I sold them about three dollars. Okay. So that was the first first I made money out of my first year. Well, that's good money, isn't it? Fifty percent yeah, money, yeah. And um, but that was an early investor, um, and then there wasn't a lot between you know that and 
some of the mistakes, so things like BHP. I mean, all those shares you bought then, you've done pretty well out of. But uh, mm. I didn't, ha- you know, when you're in your 20s, you don't have a lot of time to invest. I didn't then. Is there a stock that you've sold and you really wish you'd held on to it all that time rather than being the smarter you bought and sold and carried on? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've sold... Um, I've sold mainly because I did a lot of work. I sold had a lot of CBA shares, and I've sold some of them far too early, mainly to raise cash yeah. for life. Uh, yeah, for, for life. life. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and uh, look, I've also done that in companies like uh, I haven't never didn't do it with CSL. I got I, I didn't get into CSL too far too late, mm. but I sort of got into that in the, in the hundreds rather than the, the tens and twenties. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've had some tech companies that I've been in and got out, taken my little bit of profit. Mm. You know, the old adage, you never go wrong taking a profit. Well, yeah. you know, that sort <laughs> yeah, of works sometimes. You never go broke. Yeah, but you can go wrong. You can go wrong. And yeah. So there's been a few of those, Peter. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the better adage is let your profits run. Um, and, um, yeah. and I think that still is a pretty good moral for most investors. Yeah. I, I've found Paul with those really – uh, exceptionally exotic stocks that can really shock you, like the afterpays. You know, if, if you, for example, if you started off with a, a twenty thousand dollar investment and you and it rocks ahead, t- take that twenty thousand out. Then you can, what's what's the rest of it? Because it's all bookmakers' money in a sense, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, another company I've been in into and and got in far too early, out too early was a company called Macquarie Telecom. That's actually. Uh, mm. And not not Macquarie Bank, but it's actually a really no. Good, I talked a, David Chudhope. Yeah, a, re, a really good yeah. uh, provider of data centres, and yeah. that's done fabulously well. And, it, and I got into it. No liquidity, didn't do much, mm. wasn't going up. Yeah. Oh, well, time to get out after six months, and of course, it's almost as soon as you get up, you get out, <laughs> it, it rockets. So, yeah. you know, you, you that's the sort of second thing you need to have patience, right? Yeah. And, and I, when I look at um, the Macquarie Telecom story, because there are periods where that stock does nothing. Doesn't go anywhere, then mm. all of a sudden it does well. It reminds me a bit like Next DC. Like, yep. it does really well, and then there's for some justifiable reason it goes sideways for a while, and then it goes up again. They're, they're they're kind of playing in the right space. Those two companies, aren't they? They are, and they're both well run. They've got good clients, so they've got very very stable businesses, and it's a capital intensive thing to do. So mm. it's not there are competitors. Mm. Uh, but it needs big players to be the competitors, and so it means if you're an incumbent and you're industrial grade, and they are, and they're dealing with some of the best clients. They've got a lot of government clients, a lot of very high-caliber corporates mm. uh, as customers. You know, it's it's going to be very difficult for the, for the corporate to move as move, well yeah. because, you know, so you've got an almost locked-in revenue stream. Yeah. So that's got value in the share price, and you just got to sort of remember that before you get the temptation just to flick it out at some stage. It was interesting in the early days I... Uh, interviewed David Chudhope because, you know, as I said, I taught him at university many years ago. And and that business was actually founded on its competitive advantage was to look at everything that Telstra was doing and do the opposite. <laughs> That's right. And so you actually said that. Yeah. We, we, get, we do surveys, we find out what's wrong with Telstra, and then we do the opposite, and people then like yeah. us as a consequence. Yeah, and, and, and Telstra was trying to compete in that same space but doing it terribly. Yeah. And... Uh, and that's why they've got so many customers. So, look, uh, there are good, great, lots of stories around companies like that, and um, particularly looking at the incumbent and doing what the incumbent doesn't. But were you a big investor when you became Comsec's founding CEO? Look, not really. I just again didn't have time, and I saw a lot of damage. Um, a lot of people blow themselves up as trading. I was always an investor, so I'm not mean, a I, trader. Anyway. Not a trader. I think I think the traders have got. 
better. Maybe I have no data to say that, but my observation in the early days of Comsec is we used to have a lot of people come in and try to day trade, mm. and within a couple of months they'd be they blown up, right? Yeah. Almost invariably. Yeah. And um, I don't know whether it's got fairer or easier, or the market, or there's less information asymmetry, if that's the right word. Um, companies are much better at disclosing. Mm. Research is better. Whatever it is, technology is better. They seem to, or maybe it's the day traders have matured a little bit mm. um, and have better te- access to better technologies. Well, the information that a site like Comsec or NabTrade provides really does help the it's day traders. It's massively improved in what it, what it did at the early days, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, maybe they've got access to things like stop losses and all sorts of other technology that stopped them being blown up. Mm. Um, but they don't seem to be... Uh, they don't seem to be blowing uh, blowing themselves up as much as they did at Comsec, and I, I had spent a lot of time talking to day traders that have blown up. And uh, were they blaming you for, for <laughs> no, inducing them and I giving? I don't think they were blaming me per se, but um, you don't get you know, someone who's it's an emotional thing, right? As mm. you expect, you lost money, people are hurting, <clears throat> and you know we were just we might have been the we were the intermediary in the process, yeah. but it doesn't mean we're free of blame as far as they're concerned. Yeah, no. Um, were you popular in the stockbroking community when you started Comsec? No, I was. Uh, I actually got booed off stage, Peter. So um, we were very unpopular. What, what stage were well, you booed off? Well, I was uh, after in nineteen ninety eight or something. I forget. So we've been going seven or eight years. Uh, sorry, no, it was more, even more in the early two thousands. Um, I there used to be a well, there still is, I think, a, a what they call the stockbroker of the year. So it's a it's a foundation set up mainly to raise money for for. For children, Charities, but it, yeah. but it has an events night once mm. a year and uh, has hands out a few gongs and some so of the gongs are quite humorous, you know. Too, the think. analysts who made the biggest stuff up and oh, all those yeah. sort of things, okay, and yeah. then, you know, so there's a, there's a few gongs and there's a few prizes, and they yeah. also have a Hall of Fame stockbroker of the year. Mm. And I uh, I got that in uh, I think it was 2005, so we've been going 13 years, mm. and it I don't think it's quite as boozy today as it was then, or as blokey as it was then, but. This dinner had started about, it was a black tie dinner, had yeah. started about 7.30 or 6.30 for drinks. Yeah. The awards had started at 7.30. I'm the final gong of the night <laughs> and I'm not getting on stage till quarter to 12, right, <laughs> after they've yeah, been going. Who was the, who was the MC? <laughs> can you remember? I don't I, I know Peter Fitzsimon said he once MC'd the company. He couldn't believe <laughs> how out of control those brokers were. And so I was, I was the last gong of the night, a boozy night that had been going. I think this is the Star Casino or whatever it is now. Yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah, allegedly the highlight award of the evening, and I got booed off stage, right? <laughs> I tried to talk and they just booed me. Booed. So, look, we weren't popular and that was because, you know, the industry, um, you know, a big chunk of the industry, the private advisor market, made its money out of brokerage. In other words, it had to churn its customers and it needed – if you were a client of a private advisor – Private advisor only got paid if you did transactions. Yeah. So they had a deliberate incentive to get you to buy this or sell this mm. or go in this IPO. And in many cases, that wasn't particularly in the client's interest. Yeah. And so when It'd we like came... Wolf of Wall Street, yeah, in a sense. Yeah. Probably and, not as turbocharged as Wolf of Wall Street. But it's the same idea. you got to get people to buy yeah. or sell. And so when we came into the industry, and we, and we weren't unique in this. This had already been done offshore by a couple of people here. We... Um, slash the cost of brokerage, yeah. essentially by disaggregating the so-called execution of the trade mm. from the advice and all the research component that goes into yeah. form, you know formulating the opinion. 
And of course, because we were doing trays, you know, at the time were twenty nine dollars or nineteen dollars, whatever they are, they're even less today. And 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 stockbrokers were charging one hundred and fifty dollars. There was a lot of pressure from their clients saying, "Well, hang on, I can go to Comsec, mm. <laughs> get your advice for free, <laughs> and run along and open an account with Comsec yeah. and do the trade at a half or a third of the price." And so they were under a lot of pressure, and so their their commissions were coming down because clients were putting pressure on them to reduce their fees. Yeah. Uh, hence and, the booing. And hence the booing, and so a lot of hurt people. Now that's that, that's turned over time because the industry recognised it couldn't survive, you know, on on just being commissions. You actually had to provide value, and you charge your clients essentially on the basis of the advice. You know, either an ongoing arrangement or you manage the portfolio, whatever it is. Mm. And you didn't do it on transactions. If the transaction didn't work for the client, you didn't make the client do it. And so the whole industry's changed over that period. So I think today um, a lot of stockbrokers would see them, you know, would recognise that they've got customers that have got accounts with both, would recognise that there can be, you know, an advantage and and probably see errors because there's people doing it themselves who probably shouldn't be. So I don't think they see them as, as a competition they did, um, you know, 15 years ago, and so I don't, I don't. I think if I was to get a gong in 2021, Peter, which is unlikely, uh, I don't think I'd get booed off on the stage. No, no, because most of the people in the audience would be probably working for an online broker. They'd probably working for a live broker, or then they wouldn't be drinking, Peter. <laughs> they want to be out of there by 8:30. So. That's right. With social distancing and masks. Yeah, yeah. Paul, um, how do you invest now? Do you have a? Do you think you actually have? A Rickard style of investing. I, I do, and I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it's a, a style I would necessarily. I'm not as disciplined as I should be, yeah. and it's not as disciplined as I try to tell others to be. Yeah. Is that <laughs> so, because you're busy doing other stuff? That's sort of I'm busy. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably number one. Mm. Number two, uh, I guess I've made a lot of mistakes by selling too early, mm. and so I tend to think if I've got the right company. And I've seen a lot of market cycles, right? And so you sort of think, you know, just because the market's going down or they've got it currently everyone wants to buy after pay because buy now, pay later is the favour of the month, you sort of think you can wait this stuff out a little bit. Mm. And so um, I probably should be a lot harder on myself. Um, and so what I tend to do, Peter, it's a pretty boring st- strategy. Um, I, I tend to stick to sort of the so-called blue chips uh, I have it pretty well diversified across the market sectors. Um, a lot of bias to companies that are paying dividends, uh, companies that I think have got good history of, of you know, delivering reasonable profits, mm. good history. I love the companies that can show you there's the profit going up each year, there's the earnings going up year, there's the dividend going up, she, up, up each mm. year. That's companies like CSL, JB Hi-Fi. Mm. You know, the banks were good at that until... COVID hit, but um, there's a few other challenges. So they're the sort of companies I invest in. But it doesn't mean I'm as disciplined as I need to be. It means I've missed things. You know, I haven't been as – I had enough in some of the parts of the IT market. Mm. Um, And I probably – Bit slack about throwing things out. I sort of I tend to wait to tax time a little bit. Mm. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> Throw it clean yeah. out occasionally, but I do, I should be I should be harder on myself. What's the worst stock you've kept? And why did you keep it? Um, that's a good question. I uh, knew you were going to ask me that. Um, look, I hung on to stocks like Primary Healthcare, Helios, which has been a bit of a dog yeah. um, in, in more recent times uh, for too long. Um, I, I mean, I've had some 
I've done some rash things. Occasionally buy something because it looks interesting and you flock yeah. it again. So I've, I've made those sort of mistakes. Yeah. But everyone falls victim to that. Uh, yeah, not. I'm just trying to think of a rule. I haven't had too many disasters. Mm. Uh, I've never had, it, had been into a company that's gone broke. So you didn't buy Bebcock and Brown? No, no, I haven't had that experience. Um, I've certainly dumped a few companies that I could see were heading that way. Um, but I haven't, but because of, I've been pretty conservative. Mm. Uh, I haven't sort of had that type of. Has A and P let you down in your life? Yeah, look, fortunately, I got out of A and P uh, quite a long time ago. Mm. Uh, I don't know why I got out of A and P at the time, but I, 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 I think it was when they bought AXA, and I decided this mm. was in two thousand and thirteen or two thousand and fourteen. I decided this wasn't going to work. Yeah. So, but I didn't. I didn't cop the last. I decided fortuitously some years in advance that A and P was a dog. Yeah. Didn't think that in fifteen years ago, no. but I certainly decided about five years ago that AMP was a dog, and you, you know yeah. don't touch dogs. Yeah, when when it floated and it went into about thirty six, thirty seven dollars, mm-hmm. and then within a few months it was four dollars something. Yep, that's when I decided this is not a company for me because it, it it really was supposed to be a blue chip company. Now, Blue Chip Company doesn't behave like that, does it? Yeah, and that was, a, that was an incredibly exciting trading day for Comsec because I remember the AMP float and everyone's expecting it to be about $18. Mm. And even that was a big price. Frank Blunt, wasn't it? Frank Yep. Blunt. And we ended up trading as high as $42. 42. I think at $42 yeah. it closed at that day. And the next day it opened, I think at about $27 and went south from there, mm. <laughs> it never got – the bit between $27 and 40 they always say markets retrace gaps. Mm. It never went back. Yeah. And um, we had a lot of uh, – because Comsec, despite what we said, was still a bit pretty manual. Yeah. <laughs> we had a lot of unexecuted deals, yeah. uh, sales we'd missed, buyers we'd missed, you know, and um, all these people. It's a lot of – it was quite a costly uh, trading day. Let's just talk about Afterpay for a moment mm. because – yeah, you and I have, have always believed it was a good company. I've always been worried that the government might introduce credit restrictions that would undermine the company. And I think that's why the UBS analyst has it at $30. They still believe that could happen. Um, but the one thing I've no, no, noticed over the years which really does work is to look at what is actually really popular with the community. Mm. And buy now, pay later is really mm. popular with the community. And I know Charlie Aitken, our, our colleague, Charlie said that you know, he, he once was walking through um, a shopping centre with his daughter and, and he said, you know, what, what companies do you like? And she said, I think it was um, JB Hi-Fi because she buys her, yep. her uh, electronic stuff there and it was uh, that that baby company. What's that? Yeah, Baby Bunting. Baby Bunting yep. because, you know, that you know, her, her mum goes in there and buys stuff for the kids. And it was all those sort of things that people – actually use and are really popular. Do you think that's a pretty reasonable way to pick out a company of the future? Yeah, I do, Peter. I mean, I think I think there's a couple of um, really good lessons from the Afterpay story. Um, I, I think one is that cons- brands that are able to build consumers or businesses that have got a lot of consumers are worth a lot of money. Yeah, right. that's a good point. And much more valuable, or a lot of businesses are worth a lot of money, much more valuable than a company whose marketplace is to sort of a smaller group of, you know, corporates. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking at a, you know, Afterpay's got so many customers and done so well to get so many customers, you've got to give them top marks yeah. for the way that they've got those customers on board, right? Uh, and they can, they can cope with... Churn because they've got so many. They've got that's right. Um, 
Secondly, uh, you've got to say it's an incredibly simple proposition from the consumer's point of view. Mm. Pay off something in four instalments. That's yeah. the proposition. Yeah. No money required. Right? Mm. And that works. Uh, thirdly, from an investor's point of view, I think the other lesson you can look at the afterpay thing is, is a, there's a big difference in the market between number one and number two. Now, we were having a debate, and I wrote some articles about, um, and, you know, I, I actually, in hindsight, got this wrong, a little bit about the difference between Zip uh, and Afterpay. Mm. And if you actually look what's happened over the last 12 months, Zip's share price has sort of you know, yeah, done side, a bit. Sideways. To yeah, live afterpay has almost uh, trebled, right? Mm. And uh, that, for me, is the market recognising they're the leader. Mm. Now, I think, look at the same thing in banking. CBA is the leader. Mm. Share price has done so much better than the other banks. It's yeah. another good example. And I think in markets, go for the number one. If you go for the number two, just be aware it's the number two. It's the number yeah. one always does yeah. – markets put a value, put a premium on leadership, yeah. category leadership. Going number two, you're hoping that the halo effect will – and yeah. it does, but not, there's never and the same rate as the leader. Companies aren't always number one. It doesn't mean the number two can't become mm. the number one. So don't, it won't get there, but but – you know, there are there, the markets put a premium on leadership on category leadership, mm. right? Uh, and then thirdly, I mean, I guess the other clue here was that we saw it with CSL, and this came as a bit of a surprise. You know, the last bit of the rally in afterpay um, is partly because it got went to the top twenty, yeah. and all the institutions had to buy it. Right? Yeah. So all these fund managers say they're out there picking stocks every day. Look. To some extent, yes, but by and large, they're also desperate not to sort of underwhelm. So, if if you if you're if you're a guy or a person running a super you know industry fund, superannuation fund, or a big equities portfolio, and you don't have afterpay, <laughs> and it's the best performing stock like it was last year, your performance is 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 really hard. Mm. And so you almost have forced to buy it just to make sure that you're not too exposed to the risk of afterpay continuing to go up. Yeah. We saw it with CSL when it got into the 200s. That was one of the factors that drove it to the 300s. This is one of the reasons afterpay drove to, um, you know, drove up this last bit. Of course, the valuations of and, and and finally afterpay's done really well in the US to their credit, which yeah. is. And they're also they're showing category leadership in the US, and yeah. you have to say that that's a huge fill really to the team there. I taught, so, I taught Anthony Eisen as well, and I haven't invested in the company, so I'm hating myself. So I have to admit, Peter, I, I thought Afterpay was – I wrote an article at $70 saying is Afterpay a sell. <laughs> now 140 total yeah. egg on face. Yeah. It, it, I think it came back briefly, but, you know, they've gone from power to power. The thing that's worried me about Afterpay, I've never been worried about the um, consumer issue and, and is it credit or not. I, mm. I, I've always worried, and I still think this is Afterpay's risk, is that the – Merchant, that is the person providing the goods or the services, currently pays afterpay about four to four and a half percent of the, of the purchase price. So it's it, big, doesn't it? It is. If you're a consumer and you spend a hundred dollars on afterpay, right? The merchant only pays afterpay four dollars and fifty, and only retains ninety five dollars and fifty cents. So mm. that four and a half percent is a big cost to the merchant or the mm. or the retailer, right? And so I've always been worried that that is going to be. Um, this is going to be competed down. By the likes of MasterCard and Visa. Yeah, as big more ones. and more yeah. people come and everyone does buy now, pay later, and more brands come in, and there are more brands. Eventually, they've got to compete. They've got to get new customers, new merchants to sign up. Mm. How do you get a new merchant? You offer them a better deal. Uh, 
they haven't had that much pressure yet, but I think in the US market they're going to see that pressure. So that's that's what worries me about Afterpay going forward. It's not the business. It's not its category leadership. It's not whether it, consumers have to get a credit check or something. Or you know, I, I don't think that's the make or break. It's more about that fee being competed down. And, and on that subject, um, <clears throat> a US fund that you and I know a fair bit about, WCM, which mm. now has listed um, products on our, our stock market, they invest on the basis that a company has a, a moat, a protective moat, and it's growing. Do you think Afterpay's got a growing moat? Uh, it has so far. Mm. Uh, I think it's probably exhausted Australia. I mean, yeah. it, there's enough competition there. They say that it's the US market. And to be honest, look, the US market, we, we think the, US, the people in the States are pretty smart. In some areas... Yeah. They're pretty sleepy, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're behind and us on this stuff. They're behind us on this stuff. Most payments activities, a lot of stuff that goes on in in, in retailing, mm. and um, and so Afterpay certainly has competitors there. But uh, you know, the last little run up in Afterpay share prices because of the float in the US and mm. people saying that Afterpay looks cheap to compared to the number two there. So um, I, I think they will find, yeah, you know, there's certainly a lot of room still to grow in the US, but. At some stage, that's going to be harder, and then that's when you might see the pressure on fees. I don't know. They might just have done the proposition. Might they've got a great name too? Yeah. Yeah, I think they have to pay. I mean, exactly what it is. I look at some of these other names. You look at things like Sezzle. What the hell does that mean? You know, and even Zip, we sort of, you know, but after, and even after the US one that floated yeah. doesn't look particularly attractive. Yeah. But after pay, it makes sense. This is you pay after you yeah. bought the good. It's yeah. like. You know, I've got to say, until until Toys R Us went broke, I always thought Toys R Us was a fantastic name yeah. for a business. Unfortunately, it uh, didn't do well with the internet and Walmart, I think, crushed so it. So I, I got Afterpay spectacularly wrong and um, would I buy now? I, I think I'm too late. Yeah, yeah. Um, wait, wait for the next stock market crash because yeah. it I, look, went down to $8. It, it's a stock that's going to become, <laughs> is you know, it's not blue chip but it's in the top 20 and it's going to become, you know, if if it's able to keep growing, and the growth rates will yep. slow, but that's priced in. But if it's able to really cement its position internationally, it will yep. become a, a key Australian stock market holder's stock, I now, think. Now, one of the things you, you make sure we do in our Switzer report on Saturdays is provide a table of the stocks that mm. have been short-sold. Mm. Um, and, I've, and I've looked at that every week because, you know, I, I write the pets on Saturday and you're a part of constructing the, the rest of the, the report on Saturday. And a lot of those companies on that short selling list were, were great companies to invest in. So that in a sense, the, the short sellers have got it wrong for quite some time. Is, this, is there a bit of an investment strategy to look at the, the short sellers and assume that they, they could be getting it wrong? Uh, Jamie Hi-Fi yeah, is a classic yeah, one, it isn't is, it? It is, Petra. Harvey they've, Norman. They've, Harvey Norman, they've been short some of those companies for, for, for Zonks. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is a little bit. I mean, I think it's I, – I don't I don't not buy or not invest in a stock because it's got short sellers. Mm. I always think it's just another data input and um, it's good to know because somebody out there has got a very, very different opinion than mm. you do yeah. and they're betting a lot of money on it and you yeah. should know that. Um, and – also, because they are professionals, and you would expect that if they didn't make money out of this overall, they wouldn't mm. stay in business. Mm, right? yeah. They're not doing it for a hobby. Yeah. So um, they theoretically, at least, and I'm sure in practice, get it right more often than they get wrong. But you, but they do give you thematics because they do. Um, 
they, they were sort of right on the retailers. They, they, but they got timing wrong and they got they got other parts wrong. They so couldn't see the coronavirus leading yeah, to a stay-at-home yeah, economy. Yeah, they couldn't yeah. have they couldn't have foreseen that that and many others. They they um they also said that Amazon one of the reasons they went very bearish in a lot of the retailers for twofold. One is the fact that they thought Amazon when it came to Australia would crush not it. crush everything, right? Yeah. And to be honest, you know, the Amazon offering in Australia is interesting, but not super brilliant. They didn't. They never. They didn't launch their their A team offering. They all, yeah. they cut their offering right down, and you know they found that logistics and and geography of Australia were just a little more challenging than it is in the US. So yeah. it hasn't been super competitive. I'm not saying you can't get great things on Amazon, but it hasn't. These other people adapted, and then they're also bearish because they said you know that these people a whole trend towards online was going to kill retail. You know retail shops and they were sort of right about that but they sort of got timing wrong and picked the wrong people and I think you've seen that the some of the best retailers have really adapted very well yeah and they're also <laughs> doing well online and they're doing well online so they can get it wrong they've, they've been bearish on some medical stocks they've been bearish on things like lithium um, and uh, you know a lot of the hot stocks they, they got those largely right yeah so they get some wrong and right, but I, I, I look at that list every day, uh, or every certainly every week when we publish it, and it just gives me another data set. I think if if I know that somebody's got a big position out there the other way, I know that it might take a long time for me to be right, because they have deep pockets, and I just need mm. to be wary about that. The, the beauty of when a short seller gets wrong is it, there's a fantastic spike in the share price, yeah. isn't it? But yeah. it's it's, it's, a, it's a tricky game to play. Do you use options? Look, I did use options, Peter. I've done all the options courses. Mm. I've taught options. I've traded options. I've written options against my portfolio. So a very popular strategy for things like um, some long-term holders yeah. of stocks. You could say with a portfolio like mine, I've owned a lot of CBA shares, a lot of BHPs. You could just write call options, mm. which is a way to sort of uh, effectively get some extra premium. So you write, you know, let's say, for example, that Commonwealth Bank is trading at the moment $85. You write an out-of-the-money call option at, say, $90, right? So that means, you know, if the price of the stock gets to $90, someone will take those shares from you, their option. But if the price never gets to $90, you just hang on to the stock and you get the premium from writing the option. Mm. And it's a way to sort of just boost the income in your portfolio. Mm. So there are strategies for things that SMSFs and other portfolio holders can do. Uh, but they did take a little bit of work and you've got to be – Again, discipline, and I just don't have time to uh, – I just wonder whether they're always worth worth the effort. Do you use stops? Look, I would – I just don't do enough trading for stops. So um, I think if I if I traded, I'd use stops. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, some of the stops I have a mental stop. I, there are obviously brokers out there where you can automate your stop. I think if you – But it doesn't mean you get it, does it? Doesn't mean you get it, right? Because stocks can go straight through their stops or never trade, right? Yeah. Uh, markets are discontinuous. Yeah. So just be wary of that. There's no guarantee that you'll get executed out of the stop. Um, but uh, look, if, I think if you're a trader, I think if you're a holder, particularly if you've got a long-term view, I don't think you need to use stops. I think you do have to say what's your pain level, right? Because we're all going to get things wrong yeah. and company circumstances change and sometimes you just got to... You know, get the clear SR you were wrong, out the door, take a deep breath and start again. You might decide after a couple of weeks to buy back in, but you just need to be able to sort of – when you're wrong, it hangs over you yeah. and it really does make it hard to think. All right, so <clears throat> there are a number of maxims that I use for mm -hmm. my investing. One is a bit like you. 
I like blue chip stocks. So I, you know, I, I like CBA when it dropped under 60. I thought that was a, a good buying opportunity. It was a good buying opportunity during the GSC when it was $27. So, but I also do like that maximum to be uh, greedy when everyone's mm-hmm. fearful. Yep. So I like to buy a blue, blue chip Warren stock. Warren Buffett's uh, maximum, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so when the market crashed and everyone knows that you and I were, were writing that we thought there would be a bounce back. So, you know, I want to be a buyer. But like you, I can be too busy doing everything else, telling everybody else what I should be investing in. So I devised a new system where I just said to Maureen, my wife, and you know Maureen well, I just said, if you read something that I write or Paul write or Tony Featherston writes in the Switzer <laughs> Report and that we, we really like it, I'm quite happy for you to go off and do it. And, and, she, and how are we doing? <laughs> that's right. And she's done fantastically well because because she, uh, she edits the Switzer Report each week, as you would know. Mm. And so she would read something that we, we were really enthusiastic about and she would actually go off and invest in it. And she's done very, very well because we were doing this at the bottom of the market and so it's done very well. Do you think that people who come to investing need to get those kind of solid rules that really do work. Yeah, I think you um, I think you need to, to separate a little bit investing from trading mm. and whether you're going to be one or both. And if you, or if you do both, what are you going to trade? What are you going to invest in? Mm. Doesn't mean you don't get out of bad investments, but no. you need to just be disciplined about that. I think also um, you need to have a basis to say, look, I want – some level of diversification, you know, because I just know I can't pick the stock that's going to do best. And markets have this fantastic way of recycling this. In other words, it's something in the sector is hot for a few months yeah. and then it goes cold in another sector. They just yeah. – the momentum changes all the time, But, right? Paul, isn't that, isn't that primarily driven by the big fund managers who have to take profit – and then they do think, well, this is a, a rotation yep. period. I've made a lot of money out of tech. Gee, banks are being completely written off, and now the economy is doing well. Let's rotate into banks, and therefore, I, I think you're absolutely right, Peter. It's partly a function of that, but it, it, you always seem to go through these cycles. Mm. And um, you know, something that's it's very rare something that's hot forever and something that's cold forever. So I think you have time as investor, and if you if you back what they're doing, what management is doing then you can probably see out a lot of, on terms of, you know, hot and cold cycles in markets. So, yeah, get a, get a rule set, try to stick to it, try to be disciplined. I think the couple other maxim I'd encourage people to do is be really patient mm. because sometimes you can be right, but it can just take a long time for you to be right. Now, I'll give you a recent example of this, Peter, mm. is that, um, yeah, as you said at the outset, you said we're huge fans of the... Um, of WCM, the yeah. West Coast Management uh, and their portfolios, right? Yeah. Uh, and we have uh, there's a number of ways you can access those uh, those products in Australia. Mm. One's through a listed investment company called WQG. Yep. Trades, that's the, the that's acronym. A, a yep. Lick. Yep. yep, a lick. And one's through actually a listed managed fund, which trades under the acronym of WCMQ, which right? is like an ETF. Which is like an ETF. Yep. They actually both invest in the same portfolio of stocks. It's mm. the same strategy in terms of, you know, companies with 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 competitive with with growing moats and also the right culture, mm. run by the same people, almost identical, right? Yeah. And all our clients at Switzer, we've been really encouraging the listed investment company because it's been a trading at a discount. It was at a fifteen percent discount. So, it was so fe- for people to understand yeah. what that means, explain what a discount means. So, it, so the if if you the the market is pricing the stock on the ASX at a dollar, mm. 
say for example. But if you actually looked at, this is just a listed investment company that holds listed shares. If the listed investment company tomorrow sold all the shares, which you could do because they're all liquid, right? It would actually get effectively a return of $1.15 per share. Yeah. So something that's worth $1.15 is trading at a price of a dollar. So that's yeah. a discount. Yeah. And sometimes with listed investment companies you have the opposite. So they actually, they're worth $1.15, but people are paying $1.25 for them. Mm. Buying yeah. it at, it's called buying at a premium. premium. Yep. So um, with our clients, we've uh, we've gone in into we've been saying get into the listed investment company. These are just a great manager, but it's, you're buying something at a discount. It shouldn't be at a discount. Well, hey presto, this discount's been there for some time. Yeah. It worried you. It for worried a while. me because it's you know it's just not closing. And all of a sudden, just in the last month or so, the, the discount's gone. Yeah. <laughs> so I needed. That's just a very recent example where you know. I, Two months ago, I was really starting to say, look, am I wrong here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, kept you, and I kept telling you, shut up. <laughs> time, to get yeah, for clients not to do that, you know, <laughs> maybe they're never going to do that, yeah. never going to close. Should they just go into the uh, listed investment company, manage, uh, list for, um, the managed investment instead? But no, the, the discounts are gone. So I think you can be – so the story there is you can be right and the market doesn't agree with you. Yeah. And if you believe you're right, you've got to be patient with it. Yeah. And, and eventually the market will see sense. But the market, just because you're right yeah. or something happens, doesn't mean the market's going to see it that way. And it's funny, away. one of the reasons why I, I kept you know, um, arguing with you was they, they, they kept making capital gain. They, they, as a funder, <laughs> they were doing really well. And that actually made it harder for them to close the gap. And the market had to start to believe the story. And eventually it has. And it's, it's actually happened. Uh, you, you learn a lot, Paul, in the way, don't you? Even if you've been in the game. Well, for you a long keep time. learning. I said you keep learning, relearning the lessons of patience, yeah. uh, and uh, not to worry. And it's, it's like at the moment, you, the way the market trades, and you've got so much algorithmic trading, right? Um, and the market is just going through so many price steps so quickly. You put an order on. You can guarantee that if your order gets dealt, you'll be out of the money straight away, right? <laughs> right? You can guarantee. Yeah, yeah. You, you won't buy at the, at the bottom or sell at the top. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And you can guarantee if you get set, it'll be five cents lower or five cents yeah. higher within minutes, right? So get now, used to but, hating but, but, yourself. But, but two hours later, you're probably right. Yeah. So you just, it just need to be incredibly patient um, okay. when, when, even when you're trading, when, when you want to get something done. Okay. Now, I... My last question is going to be a hard one, and the answer would be pretty long. I want you to give give for people listening this for the five best companies in Australia that you would put into the portfolio of your daughters if they came as a dad. Give me those five core um, mm-hmm. stocks I've got to have and I'll hold for a long time. Okay, that's that's not hard to answer, yeah. Peter. Um, first of all, is CSL. Yeah. Um, I think the best company in Australia. So that's um, yeah. um, you know hugeish number one global leader in um, in blood plasma, uh, global leader, and number two globally in influenza vaccines and other things. So mm. um, you know Australia's leading biggest company by market cap. Yep. Uh, number two uh, would be uh, BHP. Now I'm, I'm I think this is just a long term. They have got fantastic assets. Yeah. They've made some mistakes over the decades, but at least in the last four or five years, management's got it very disciplined. They've got some fantastic assets. They're a diversified resource company. Their price is going to go up and down. At the moment, it's right up near the high because iron ore and copper prices are doing really well. 
but you know they've got the best assets. Yep. And if they're not the the world's best miner, they're close to it, right? Yep. So that's that's number two. And that, and that's we're good at we're good at that in Australia, right? Yep. That's one of our skills. We're, we're actually really good at medical things too. So mm. both we we're, we're globally we're leaders in those two industries. Yep. Right? And these are yep. world leading yep. companies. Yeah. Yep. Number three would be CBA. Now, look, I'm biased there. Banking, not out of fashion, but they're clearly Australia's best bank. And we're good at banking as well. We're good at banking. Macquarie, for example. Yeah, and and Macquarie would probably be pretty close as a number four, right? But Mm. I'll go with – I could put Macquarie in there. I I probably will go with CBA. Mm. Um, And I think you'd probably say say Macquarie, but I'd probably go with CBA. It's it's a bit more traditional. So they're, again, from from different, different sectors and industries. I think it's really important to get diversification. Um, number four, I do think Woolworths is a pretty good company too, yeah. right? Um, and uh, look, there's, there's some challenges with Woolworths around. It's still got the, the, the hotels part, but it is the best, the best big retailer. Yeah, consistently. Uh, consistently and a dominant market position and it ain't going anywhere. It gets rid of the... Um, you know, get gets rid of the hotels division, which has probably held it back. Some people don't like it. They don't like the gambling. Yeah. Um, so it means that some uh, funds won't in, yeah. funds won't invest in it, and that could affect the yep. share price. Yeah. So bear in mind, we're also looking for companies that are really, I think, a blue chip. Right? Yeah. I, there are yeah. some other great companies I haven't got in here. Yeah, but the fifth uh, one. And I'm just thinking of the fifth one. Um, I mean, I love companies like JB Hi-Fi. I, lo- I like West Farmers. Mm. Um, what's the company? Uh, uh, Zero. I like Zero. I'm going to ask um, you the five potentially hot companies, yeah. the ones that would be much bigger price in five or six years' time. Maybe. I'm just trying to think of that fifth. Maybe you can throw some other. Uh, look, Amcor is a great company, mm. uh, which is the manu- uh, materials manufacturing company. Uh, I, I'm surprised you haven't got JB Hi-Fi in there, Paul, but still you, you might – are you thinking look, that maybe it could be – It's a terrific company, uh, mm. Australia's best retail. I was just looking for something from a different – Potentially a different sector. Look, I'll, I'll go with JB Hi-Fi, yeah, right? I think you should. Yep. Okay. All right. Now, let's go, let's go for your five potentially hot companies. And they could be well known. Like, for example, I talked to a guy who's – hopefully I'm going to interview him who, – who has a pretty big holding in zero, but he sold a lot of it because he's made a lot of money out of it, but he still thinks this is going to be a $600 company one day. Mm-hmm. And it was 140 or something yep. like that. yep. And so from my point of view, and I respect the guy, it could be wrong, of course, but I think it's potential. If they crack the American market, that could easily be a $600 company. So that's one I would put in my five potentially hot companies for the future. Well, I'd agree. I think Zero would be number one in my okay. uh, potential companies. Uh, very expensive share price at the moment. Yeah, We'd like right. to see it come down, Pete. Yeah. Um, look, I, I, st- I agree with you about Macquarie. So I think there's still a lot of upside in Macquarie. So Macquarie's number two? Macquarie's number two. I went for a more traditional one. And Macquarie's going to be more up and down, but yeah. I, I think it's... Uh, as an investment it, bank. As an it? investment bank. So and it's, it's going to have more... It's going to have some wins and losers. Yeah. And um, it's also a bit more exposed to the US dollar. So if, mm. with the Australian dollar sort of going up, it's going to probably find it a bit more difficult. Yeah. So I, 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 I'd put Macquarie in there, number two. Um just to go how sort of speculative here or how um, – trying to think of some other great companies that I think are – I think um, I think for a couple of value companies, um, I think Treasury Wines is a value company. And, and, and you're gambling that one day yep. the China thing will go yep. away and, and it's 
Quality assets will be there on, on display. Yep. Up goes the share yep. price. Yep. Okay. Um, I think A2 Milk could go a bit lower first, but mm. I think that that's a, it's a superb marketing company yep. with a very unique position. Now, yeah, the people are all sold to the A2 stuff, but it owns the brand, you know, yeah. and I think that's going to give it a really um, strong place. And then um, on the tech side, uh, we've sort of hit, we've had zero. Um, Next DC is pretty strong. You'd have to back a company like Next DC. Mm. Uh, maybe I should just throw that question to you because I'm sure you'll think of. I, I didn't prepare for this answer. No, no, and no. I no, prepare no, some well, of the other well, answers. So you look, caught me a little if, bit. If I'm looking, if I'm looking for a real blue chip tech stock in Australia that will, I think will grow over time, I'd go Next DC. Um, I also like, and you, you know, I both like. Uh, I think Elmo Software. Yep. But, yep. but it. it it, it might not do as well as we think, but we think it has potential. So I think I'm, I'm down to them. I think Megaport's another one that I'm quite impressed with, but uh, I think it's, you know, I don't understand it as well, but better than Slattery does, and he says there's no rival for it out there as well. But I think we've got some interesting ones out there, like maybe Afterpay. Not, yeah, maybe Afterpay. I'm, I'm also quite a fan of Len Lease. Mm. Uh, for its strategy, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's been caught up by COVID nineteen, but mm. it's I think its strategy of of making sort of livable sort of cities, uh, or sort of livable areas in in gateway cities, I think is, is really appealing. Yeah. Um, so there's another. We well, got one. You got one to go, Paul. You've done uh, zero Macquarie, Treasury Wine Australia, and A two Mill. Well, I'll I'll put in um, up and comers uh, for the. Oh, I'll stick my neck out and go for Lendlease. Okay, we've done it. Lend less. Yeah, just having a little thought on that one. But I did next DC I like. So there's some other ones that. Uh, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll put reserve ones in there yep. next next DC. Yeah. yeah. All right. So before we wrap up, then for anyone out there who really does want to progressively build wealth um, um, in the stock market, should they worry about timing, or should they be worried about time in the market? Look, I think the adage that uh, is, is about time in the markets is more important than timing, or not quite how it goes, Peter. But yeah, uh, yeah. time in the market is better is more is more important than timing the market. Yeah. if you do both, it's fantastic. Yeah. and that's and and it, and the data hundred percent supports that. So if mm. you look at the data of, of just for example uh, your favourite graph of uh, the index mm. over. 30, 40 10, years. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, yeah. 70, 80 years mm. proves that. But also the data that people have done have looked at, say, the you know if you're trying to time the market and the best days of the market and the cost of your portfolio, if yeah. you don't have positions when the market has its strongest rallying days, yeah. you're almost flat. That's right. <laughs> and so if you're, if you're in and out of the market, you know, I mean, you could, uh, you could have got um, – you know, go back to what happened in uh, in February, March last year. Now, it's only the – I think in my 30 or 40 years in the market, it's probably the craziest or amongst the top two or three craziest periods in the market. One was post the GFC in about early 2009. Yeah. And there was another one in the internet crash of 1999 or 2000. Yeah, yeah. And there's another one in 1987. So, I mean, awesome. four crazy, really crazy periods in the market. Yeah. And you could have been spectacularly right on about the 16th or 17th of March last year, being short everything, 
and and seen it go down low for the next day and well, go down. We know someone who's yeah, exactly yep. like that. And and be absolutely right. And then the twentieth of March when it bottomed and you could not. And that was, if you just go back to that day, there was not a buyer in sight. Mm. <laughs> but then you couldn't get set for anything. And the market rallied so hard off that day, and it really was grim. I remember that day and saying, "God, how can you buy anything? This is the, the world's about to fall in here." Yeah. But of course, it doesn't. And um, if you miss that, and if you've been short beforehand, absolutely right, and you miss that turn in the market, you would have been absolutely blown away. So, but whereas if you sat back and did nothing mm. all last year. You basically finished up about square. <laughs> so you could have gone to sleep. and no, yeah. we couldn't go away from that period, unfortunately. But, you you know, you, yeah, you would uh, – the stock market actually finished up uh, with with dividends with a net gain of 1.4% for yeah. the year, right? Well, so, yeah. so that tells you you could ignore the 35% fall <laughs> – and, yeah. the, and the rally back, and almost have slept solidly through that, and and not suffered too much. And, and because I, I I do like being an economic and market historian, what I learned, and I actually did learn it in the GFC, so I, I applied it this time. I didn't get right in the GFC. I, I I I I got the the fact that in two thousand nine the market was going to rebound. I got that right, but didn't get get it positioned enough to do as well as I did this yep. time. And the reason is I found that as the market got got stronger and stronger across 2019, I started building up a bit of a cash war chest in case the market sold off. I thought I'd be buying to a 10% sell-off, yeah, because you mm. and I were saying, yep. this market needs a bit of a pullback. And so as a consequence, I actually did have some money to buy at the lows on the way up, and that became a, a, a beneficial thing. So I've learned that... You don't sell everything, but you, you try to build a bit of a, a war chest when you think a yep. market is overpriced. And that's another little lesson that I didn't use in 2009, learned in, that in 2009 and, and applied it this year. And I think with all these stocks here, Paul, people don't need to ru- go and buy these tomorrow. But if there is a sell-off, these are great names to be buying yep. at the right time. Yep, absolutely. Paul Rickard, thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. Thanks, Peter. And that was Paul Rickard, my colleague on the Switzer Report. Paul, of course, was the founding CEO of Comsec. And uh, a lot of his writings and his analysis of companies, you'll find that every week in the Switzer Report, you can be a subscriber for $397 a year. And uh, for many people, it could even be tax deductible. But the insights are absolutely fantastic. And I must say, my story on Monday talking about Tyro uh, after it was slugged by a, a short seller and the stock market uh, market price dropped down to $2.32. It rebounded on Tuesday after I wrote that story, went up to about as high as $2.92 or something like that. So these are the sort of things that we do talk about in the report. And uh, on many occasions in 2020, we really did get it right. And so if you're looking for some guidance when it comes to investing, given the the people who I'm working here with, Paul Rickard, Tony Featherston, former editor of BRW Magazine, James Dunn, um, Julia Lee, Rudy Phillip, Van Dyke, all these people share their weekly views on what some of the best investments are. So if you're interested in investing in the stock, have a good look and have a free trial of this Switzer Report. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you next week.
Thank you.